Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. My name is Andy Boyd. Today on the program, we're speaking with Kate Dossett, author of Radical Black Theater in the New Deal. Kate, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks, Andy. Great to be here. Could you tell us a bit about kind of how you became interested in in theater? I believe you teach in in the history department at your university, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, I think my my interest in theater really came out of the broader interest in black culture and the investments that African-Americans and a whole range of uh, different actors make in black theater and black culture more broadly in the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, And if you know anything about the 1930s, you know that uh, it's a period when um, people from across the political spectrum are both excited by, but really fearful of what theater can do. So it's the political possibilities of theatre that really drew drew me to the project in the first place. And what about your broader interest in in that period? Kind of where where did that come from? How did you get interested in African-American culture in the 20s and 30s? I I, I don't want to, you know, um, bring up the obvious, but you're you're not from America. So so, um, where did that interest come from? Yeah, I mean, there's a long tradition in uh, British higher education of uh, British scholars uh, who are interested in histories of race, who are interested in histories of black culture turning to the US. Um, And I think there's a whole, you know, sort of colonial history there and a history around the absence of of black British history within higher education and within um, scholarly studies in the UK and that sort of displacement. So I guess I came as part of this generation of historians who were really interested in histories of race, but didn't really have the opportunity to study Black British history. So I think if you were interested in race, you looked at histories of empire, you might look at India, you might look at Africa, or you looked at the United States. And I guess the courses I chose to study as an undergraduate you know, a student at Oxford University were, were very much focused on the US Civil War um, and to a lesser extent on the history of the civil rights movement. Um, and, you know, most British universities have very many civil rights movement experts, but they have very few historians of Black Britain even today, though that's beginning to change. So I guess it, it comes out of a place of being interested in race and histories of Black culture um, and the opportunities that presented themselves to me were to study that in the US. And then, of course, I had a really informative and eye opening trip to the US when I was 21. I just finished college and um, my university had a had a program you could apply for which allowed you the opportunity to to visit the US and to travel around the US and in fact traveling around was uh, really part of the program and they gave you a sum of money I think it was about three thousand dollars then and you could go for the whole summer and they gave you a list of alumni that you could call up and say hi I'm a British woman I'm really interested in exploring the US would you mind putting me up so I started off in New York City and I traveled around the South, up the Mississippi to Chicago and found my way um, to Harlem. And this is in about um, the late 1990s, 1999, I think. 
And I guess it was that first visit to the Schomburg Centre back in 1999 that really sparked my interest in black culture in the US. Hmm, that's fascinating. Um, I, I'm going to ask an obvious question just based on the title of your book, Radical Black Theatre in the New Deal. I'm interested in that word radical. How do you define radical black theatre? Yeah, I was really interested in thinking about the ways in which black theatre makers adapt and reject and reinvent the accepted modes of performing blackness in the 1930s. And I was also interested in why we didn't know this. So part of what I'm doing by using that term radical is looking at how black theatre makers were able to create space for new ways of representing black aspirations, both in terms of American literature, American dramatic literature, uh, but also on the stage. So, so the radicalism I'm referring to is both thinking about this unacknowledged, this um, deliberately silenced history that very few of us are very familiar with. So if you think about histories of black theater in the 20th century, uh, scholars, students, theater makers often turn, turn to the 1920s, to the Harlem Renaissance or to the black arts movement. Um, and I think as I explore in the book, we still have this very powerful legacy of anti-communism and the Cold War, which has silenced this history of the 1930s and in particular the history uh, of black culture and the history of black theater making. Yeah, one, one of the kind of scholarly debates and popular debates that I think your book is making an intervention in is this idea that, you know, the New Deal was bad for black people or was maybe, you know, kind of good for black people, but much better for, for white people. Um, do you feel like, what, how, do you, how do you feel like your book fits into that broader controversy? I think it's a really, still a very powerful debate, isn't it? And it's, it's one that I think many scholars are still very invested in. And I guess I'm a bit wary about this. Um, you know, how, how do we measure that? How do we judge that? And, you know, we could, be a, we could be social economic historians and we could say, well, look at how many people the New Deal touched, look at how many Black American families were supported by WPA wages, for example, look at the proportion of African-Americans who are employed on the WPA. And we can do all that statistical analysis, but I don't think that really captures how the New Deal was experienced. And I think the, the federal arts programs in general and the federal theater project in particular really give us insight into how African-Americans engaged with the New Deal. And I, I think in terms of that broader debate, it's really difficult to have a definitive answer, but I guess what I was interested in was what happens if we take as our starting point that African-Americans did feel empowered to engage with the bureaucracy of the WPA, that they experienced discrimination and had to spend an inordinate amount of time fighting for equal access knowing that they might often not get it, but nevertheless, they thought it was worthwhile. And I'm interested on the, in the one hand on why they thought it was worthwhile and how those efforts to engage with New Deal structures opened up new opportunities to African-Americans. So I don't get the sense that, at least when it came to the Federal Theatre Project, I don't get the sense that every single day is a battle or that it's constantly a task of trying to persuade white gatekeepers to let you in. But that's sort of there, that's an undercurrent and sometimes it's more um, 
uh, is something that shapes your everyday experience more than other days. But I think African-Americans feel entitled to this in a way that access to other theatre opportunities feels really different. And part of that, of course, is because it's a federally funded project that politicians are elected and politically accountable for it. And the people that they appoint to run these programmes during the course of the four years of the Federal Theatre Project, for example, uh, people are held to account. They are pressured. They have people in their offices. They have people on strike outside their offices. Um, they sometimes refuse to leave the offices of administrators. So I think in this way, then, Black theatre becomes a really legitimate site of debate for, for, for Black Americans' political future, as well as uh, a site of important debate about the role of African Americans in shaping a broader American culture. Hmm. I have the uh, two volume Random House collection of Federal Theatre Project plays, um, which, which doesn't include any plays by Black American writers. Uh, or you know, black writers at all, and does include some depictions of black people that are uh, questionable at best. Uh, probably it's more accurate to just say racist depictions. So there's definitely a kind of um, you know a broad spectrum of representations within the Federal Theater Project. Um, how do you feel like the kind of historical memory of uh, the the Federal Theater Project has kind of shortchanged the 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 radicality? Uh, and, and, you know, even just the existence of Black theatre workers. Well, you raised the really um, important question of publication, right? So both what the Federal Theatre Project put out at the time, but also what gets published in later anthologies, what, what we have access to. And I think both at the time in all the sort of research projects, which were part of the, the Federal Theatre Project, so the National Service Bureau, which was this sort of central part of the FTP. It was set up to do research into theatre history. It also had the play reading division. So that was where um, anyone wanting to have their play put on, you'd send a copy of it to, to the National Service Bureau's playwriting division. And I think across both the research that the FTP is doing at the time um, and in many narratives that come out of the FTP in the 1940s and 1950s, we have this really strong um, sense that there were very few original black dramas staged or developed by the Federal Theatre Project. And I think that's a view which um, is partly reflected by the organization and the structure of the Federal Theatre Project's own official archive. And there's a incredible archive story behind um, the FTP's archive, uh, which we can perhaps go into a bit later. But I think, the knowledge production around the Federal Theatre Project has long promoted this idea that, uh, you know, white administrators, white diet supervisors of the so-called Negro units were doing their best, right? They were doing their best to put on mainly white dramas, some of which had very racist depictions, but they tried to choose the sort of least racist ones. Um, but it was really difficult because African-Americans weren't trained as playwrights and there was this real dearth of black uh, dramatic literary material. And I think this narrative is one that is still widely seen in much of the scholarship that emerges out of the 70s and the 80s. And even I think after the restoration of the Federal Theatre Project archive takes place um, in the 1970s. And I think there's loads of different reasons for that. Um, some of it is, as I suggest, to do with the archive, 
but I think some of it's to do with this assumption that African-Americans had no training, there were no, there, there just were no parts of the federal theatre project that were geared up to help develop black playwrights, as a result of which it was understandable, quote unquote, to turn to Paul Green or Eugene O'Neill. In other words, that there, there was this canon of established white serious dramatists who were doing um, apparently serious race dramas and that the Federal Theatre Project did its best, but it was really hard to develop black um, playwriting out of nothing. And I think that that dangerous narrative is one that gets repeated in some of the earliest uh, scholarship, which really dates to the 1960s. Was there any awareness um, of the existence of, an, of, of a black theatrical tradition already? I mean, I'm thinking of the, the Black Theatre USA anthology, the first volume of which ends in the mid thirties. <laughs> so, you know, there were, there were dozens of plays, uh, you know, at least that had been written by African-American writers prior to the period of the New Deal. Um, did, did these administrators just not know of the existence of, you know, playwrights like William Wells Brown and, and other black playwrights? Well, interestingly, they do commission a survey into it. So the National Service Bureau employs a number of uh, black dramatists and researchers, including someone called John Silvera. And he, he does do a study into the history of black drama. Um, and he's very well aware of, of, of 19th century black drama. I think um, federal theatre project administrators higher up are very skeptical of uh, playwrights they haven't heard of, of dramatic traditions they're unfamiliar with. And when um, historic plays get presented, which is very seldom actually, there's the argument that, well, we're interested in new, innovative new dramas, right? Mm. That doesn't stop you from putting on Shakespeare. It doesn't stop you from putting on the classics. Um, or even O'Neill's plays from 20 years earlier. I mean, you, you right. talked about productions of Emperor Jones, which was not a new play at the time. Right, right. So, uh, and actually putting on uh, very contemporary playwrights was quite difficult because you usually had to pay them a, a substantial fee and there wasn't really that much money in the FT budget for that. So, yeah, absolutely. On the one hand, there is a real interest in, in putting on historical dramas, uh, but not when it comes to uh, a, a Black theatre tradition which isn't acknowledged. The Black theatre traditions that are acknowledged in the 1910s and 20s are, are the minstrel tradition. So, you know, there are a number of uh, units across the US, units of the Federal Theatre Project in Chicago, for example, um, which have minstrel units, blackface minstrel units. New Orleans even has a blackface uh, marionette unit uh, with an all, all, all uh, black troupe, actually. But most of the minstrel units, which are um, uh, created by the Federal Theatre Project, are, are white actors uh, in blackface. Were there ever any tensions between some of the more radical politics of black theater workers and the, you know, call it left liberal politics of the New Deal? Yeah, and in fact, I think that's a, that's a key, key theme of the book. And I think it's a key, a key theme of um, how African-American theater makers engage with the New Deal. So um, the requirement that you develop dramas which are uh, broadly supportive of the New Deal is a kind of, it's, it's, it's a hidden pressure, but it's one that I think comes out very much in the correspondence between white supervisors 
and black theatre makers. And in fact, it becomes the subject of uh, black plays themselves. So some of the dramas that I look at are living newspapers created by um, black theatre makers, sometimes within specific uh, so-called Negro units, but other times uh, created out of the central play writing division in New York City. And those living newspapers really mock the sort of liberal pretensions of white federal theatre supervisors in really funny ways. Um, and one of the reasons that they're so funny is because you see this back and forth, both in the manuscripts, but also in the correspondence between white supervisors uh, and black dramatists. You see this correspondence in which black dramatists are required to make changes and they resist those changes. Um, and then you see some of that actually dramatized within the living newspaper itself. So I'm talking here specifically about Abram Hill and John Silvera's extraordinary, radical, innovative and daring uh, satire called Liberty Deferred, one of the very few black dramas from the Federal Theatre Project that has been published uh, in a black theatre anthology. Uh, what about um, black performers being asked to uh, play characters that kind of reinforced racial stereotypes? How did they push back against that material? You know, like, for example, Emperor Jones or, or similar kind of portrayals by white writers? I think it varies from place to place. I think um, you know, Paul Green is a much loved dramatist on the part of Hallie Flanagan, has a very close relationship with him. Uh, you know, in, in her account of the Federal Theatre Project arena, she talks about Paul Green in the same breath as Aristotle and Shakespeare. So, you know, she's very close to him. She sees his work as really central to uh, that sort of ideas and ambitions of the Federal Theatre Project. And there's a lot of pressure on Negro units to produce Paul Green. And most Negro units do produce uh, in Abraham's bosom um, and, and, and other Paul Green dramas. Um, the Chicago Negro units rehearse a Paul Green drama. They rehearse him of the rising sun. And Richard Wright famously describes uh, his role in this. Uh, he suggests it. He, at that point, is getting to know Paul Green ahead of their working together on the stage adaptation of, of his book, Native Son. And Paul Green's hymn to the rising sun is a really sort of um, searing account of the chain gang, but it requires African-Americans to perform uh, roles of incarcerated prisoners, roles which the Chicago troupe simply didn't want to play. And Richard Wright recounts this moment when uh, the black troupe have been rehearsing Green's drama and they say to Wright, we just don't want to play this. We, we, we don't want audiences to see us in this way. We, we don't want to play what Saida Hartman would call you know, scenes of subjection over and over again. So they refuse to play that and it doesn't go on. I think more often, rather than outright refusal, we see black troops in the Negro units adapting, changing, sometimes like on the night itself, right? You know, unauthorized changes to the script and sometimes working with white supervisors and directors to make changes to white authored scripts. Um, in Los Angeles, for example, the, the LA Negro units, um, the white director writes in his report on the production of a play by a white author. It's a John Henry play. It's by an author called Frank Wells. And the black troupe in Los Angeles 
uh, really hate the costumes that they're being given to wear. You know, they're required to wear really scruffy, uh, dirty clothes um, to make them look like manual laborers. Um, and they're theatre actors and they don't want to wear them. So after opening night, they just turn up in the clothes that they've chosen to wear. And the director kind of throws his hands up and says, you yeah, know, there's, there's nothing I could do. They, they, they insisted on wearing their own clothes. So I think there's lots of instances of, you know, resistance, of changing and adapting the words or the meanings or the expressions of why authored plays. But I think perhaps we see most resistance of all in the initiatives that Black troops take to develop and make their own dramas. So my book is interested partly in how African-Americans respond to and engage with white dramatists and their depictions of African-Americans, but I'm really interested in those neglected black theater manuscripts and the opportunities that black theater makers took to uh, put forward their own ideas and to um, develop a, a radical repertoire. Yeah, great. So let's let's talk about those plays. I was particularly interested to learn how common it was for Black playwrights to write plays that served a sort of educative purpose, um, kind of educating audiences about Black history. There's a play about Harriet Tubman that you discuss at length. Could you talk a, a bit about how Black theater workers kind of portrayed Black history on stage? Yeah, I think that's true. And I think some of the history plays are about very recent history um, and they're often the most provocative and controversial. So I'm thinking here particularly about Theodore Ward's Big White Fog, which examines um, the Garvey movement, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, uh, particularly in Chicago, um, but also examines um, you know, the growing populace, po popularity of, of communism. But then there are other plays that examine histories of enslavement um, and particularly black resistance to, to enslavement. So uh, Theodore Brown, who is a playwright in residence at the Seattle Negro Unit before moving to Boston and then to uh, the Harlem Negro Unit where his Harriet Tubman play is cast and rehearsed, but very sadly gets, the, the whole project gets closed down before it can be staged. And his Harriet Tubman, history play is really interesting because I think he's writing at a moment when black intellectuals and historians, figures such as W.E.B. Du Bois are writing about um, slavery, are writing about self-emancipation and are really um, tearing away at this idea that the Civil War was this noble struggle between the North and the South, uh, which didn't really have very much to do with slavery. Um, and just as Du Bois and uh, historians that come after Du Bois are, are um, showing us the evidence for what we've always known, right, that the Civil War was fundamentally about slavery. I think Theodore Brown, uh, the WPA um, interviews with former enslaved people, uh, these are all part of a broader sort of cultural effort to challenge the dominant narratives about the 19th century, but particularly the dominant narratives about uh, the role of African Americans. And so I think Theodore Brown's Harriet Tubman play is so fascinating because he not only centers the roles of African-Americans in winning freedom for themselves, interestingly, he centers the role of women and women's leadership within black communities. And that, it seems to me, is a really radical thing to be doing in the 1930s on the Federal Theatre Project on government time. Um, and I think it's particularly interesting because there were so, there were relatively few 
women playwrights whose work was staged and developed by the Federal Theatre Project. But I think in the Negro theatre units, um, it's really striking how both Theodore Brown and Theodore Ward, um, the author of the Chicago's Big White Fog production, they really examine gender hierarchies within black political communities, and they really foreground uh, the roles of, of black women. Yeah, you mentioned the Seattle Negro unit, which I was very curious to learn about, um, because you know Seattle is not usually thought of as a, a hotbed of black artistic achievement. Could you talk a bit more about the Seattle unit and, and what kind of state plays they staged? Yeah, I think for historians of the Federal Theatre Project, Seattle is is this very exciting and innovative place. And I think for when it comes to the Negro unit, some of that um, innovation comes from the fact that it is so far from Washington DC, it is so far from New York City, which becomes the center for the Federal Theatre Project. And there's this real sense, I think, that um, perhaps you can get away with experiments in Seattle that you might not be able to in Boston or, right. or other, other cities, right? Or Chicago. Um, and although Hallie Flanagan and her various representatives do go and tour across the country, there are a number of sort of regional um, centres. Uh, so, for example, Los Angeles would be the, the, the local regional centre for Seattle. Nevertheless, I think there is a level of independence and autonomy that, that's available to people who are further away from, from the East Coast. And in Seattle, there is already an existing tradition of um, uh, white producers and directors working with black communities to put on race dramas. So the Seattle Repertory Playhouse is um, a playhouse that's run by uh, Florence and Burton James. They're two white um, uh, directors who work at the University of Washington in Seattle. And really starting in the early 1930s, sort of 1931, 1932, they become really interested in staging Paul Green in Abraham's bosom. And uh, they sort of do a call out to the local black church and uh, find that there's a really rich tradition of uh, theatre making and um, uh, putting on plays within the, the local black church. So there's already this existing collaboration. And in fact, in most of the um, Negro units that I um, explore in the book, whether it's Chicago, or Hartford, Connecticut, or Boston, or, or in New York City, there is already an existing and, and very vibrant history and recent history of white directors working with black troops to stage black theater. So most of the Federal Theater Project Negro units came out of some kind of prior relationship and often um, the white theater would offer to be a sponsor uh, for, for this new Negro unit. So that's some of the origins of this Seattle Negro unit. But I think um, even the Jameses are surprised at how successful the unit becomes. So they, they depart after a couple of years and increasingly, and this is the case across the Negro units, increasingly it's the black troupe who take ownership for the, for the repertoire, for the programming and who develop their own plays. So although nearly all the Negro units, except for Boston, are set up under white supervision and direction in 1935. By 1939, most of them are um, in, in effect being run by um, leading members of the Black troop. Mm, that's fascinating. One of the other themes in your book that I thought was very interesting is the way that kind of uh, stories from 
the black folk tradition get turned into dramas. I'm thinking of John Henry in particular. Could you talk about how John, the story of John Henry was adapted for the stage? Yeah, so John Henry is a really sort of powerful uh, figure and um, image in the 1930s. To, to those on the radical left, um, he's much popularized um, artists, muralists, um, you frequently see images of, of John Henry in uh, magazines and journals, such as New Masses, for example. And he becomes increasingly popular as a, as a figure for the stage, too. And many white dramatists, including Paul Green, uh, write various John Henry um, stories. And I think it's partly in response to those white narratives that Theodore Brown, the Seattle Negro unit playwright in residence, develops his play Natural Man. Um, and his, his version of John Henry is kind of a rebuttal to those uh, white adapted uh, narratives about, you know, this most famous folk hero. And I think in Natural Man, we see John Henry made fit for the 1930s. So although it's in, it, start, it takes place in the 1880s, um, you know, it's engaging with this sort of the struggle between, you know, man's natural power and you know, the machine and the, the ways in which industrialization has, has changed the nature of work and the relationship between, you know, black manpower and white overseers. Nevertheless, I think it's a, it's a play that's very much about the 1930s and it's a play that's about black nationalism. It's a play about how black workers engage with white workers, particularly in a context where American unions so often excluded uh, black workers from from membership. So I think it's a play that's in part about Seattle and some of the, uh, the, the strikes, the maritime strikes that have been taking place throughout the 1920s and 1930s. So in some ways it's a labour play, but it's also very much interested in how African-Americans shape narratives about the folk tradition. And I think it really stands out um, because it's about, uh, because it's a folk drama. And because that's so seldom, folk dramas by Black American playwrights are so seldom produced by the Federal Theatre Project. The only other um, unit which does produce Black authored folk dramas is in Boston. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the Boston Negro unit is the only unit to have a Black supervisor from the very beginning. Um, and it's directed by Ralph Coleman, who's an actor, director, theatre maker. And he and other members of the Boston Negro unit produce and direct a number of black folk dramas throughout the Federal Theatre Project. And it's interesting because they face quite a lot of criticism, predominantly from uh, Boston's black community, because the folk drama for many African-Americans on the stage is something that white people do, is something that Paul Green does. It's a, a way of appealing to a white sensibility about African-Americans being um, not harmful, not dangerous. They're seen as very unpolitical plays. So many of the reviews in the local um, Black Boston newspapers are uh, very critical of Ralph Coleman, of his leadership, question whether he should be leading the unit because he's doing these folk plays. And Ralph Coleman uh, writes a letter uh, in, in response to his critics, a very sort of powerful letter in which he says, you know, we mustn't hand over the black folk tradition to, to white folks. This is our tradition. And just because um, in some minds it's become associated with, um, uh, with Paul Green, with, with a sort of white tradition of 
um, seeing African-Americans as simple, as rooted in a sort of rural Southern past. That doesn't mean we shouldn't claim this tradition. We can adapt it and reinvent it for the 20th century. So I think the folk tradition and how it get, plays out in the Federal Theatre Project is really, really interesting. It's something I don't explore in a huge amount of detail, perhaps in this book, though, though I have in other places. And I think actually in terms of how we think about what is radical or what kinds of dramas black theatre makers were interested in on the Federal Theatre Project. I think there's, there's a huge number of black folk dramas that are sitting in the Federal Theatre Archive, many of which have never been looked at or, or, or staged or explored by scholars. So if any of our listeners are looking for a, a thesis topic, maybe that's what they should explore. <laughs> Absolutely, black folk dramas in Boston. <laughs> You're here to hear first. Um, one figure I'd love to ask about is Shirley Graham. And I, I basically would take any opportunity to talk about Shirley Graham. She's such an amazing person. Um, could you talk about what her role was within the Harlem Negro unit? So Shirley Graham um, is one of the very few black supervisor that's, supervisors that's appointed by uh, Hallie Flanagan. And she is sent out to the Chicago uh, Negro unit. And the Chicago Negro Unit has, um, has a lot of problems. It has really struggled to put on, uh, to stage many plays. And uh, when she gets there, she is really determined to uh, change this and to work with uh, the local black community. And one of the plays that she is involved in is Theodore Wars Big White Fog and uh, it's a play about black nationalism, it's a play about communism, it's a play about what's wrong with capitalism and um, she decides that it's a play that might well ruffle a few feathers and that the best way to anticipate this is to invite uh, the local community to come and hear a preview of the play. So one of the things that's um, sort of most known about Shirley Graham and, and her role at the Chicago Negro Unit is, is the mediating role that she plays between the local community and uh, Theodore Ward as playwright and Kay Ewing, who is the white director of this play. And there's this very extensive correspondence between Shirley Graham and uh, you know, local NAACP officials, uh, the local YMCA, the local church, the local Boy Scouts Association. And when she stages this preview of Theodore Ward's um, controversial play, um, they're all very polite on the night. They all clap and say, yes, yes, thank you for, for inviting us. And then they send a series of um, very critical letters in which they, they don't like the exploration of colorism. They don't like the representation of, of women and sexual politics within the Garveyite home that they seem presented on the stage. So I guess one of the things that's really interesting about Shirley Graham is how she gets um, written into that controversy over what happens to Theodore Ward's play, Big White Fog. But I think the other really interesting uh, role that Shirley Graham has is in terms of encouraging, uh, mentoring and uh, facilitating new productions. So the other production at Chicago that she's most associated with is the so-called Swing Mercado. So um, a, a, a swung syncopated version of, of Gilbert and Sullivan. And although, we can see from the archive that Shirley Graham was very much involved in this. She leaves the project um, to go to Yale and she is never fully credited for this enormously, enormously successful uh, production. 
Um, there's a really interesting letter between Mary White Ovington, a very prominent mem white member of the NAACP in New York City, and Mary White Ovington writes a letter to Shirley Graham because she's just gone to see Swing Mercado, which is so successful, it leaves the Federal Theatre Project and tours to New York City. And when Ovington is sitting um, in the audience watching Swing Mercado and she's looking at the playbill, she's really horrified to see that Shirley Graham has, hasn't been credited in it at all. So I think the other thing that Shirley Graham experiences on the Federal Theatre Project really reminds us of is the ways in which uh, black women were at the center of many of these black performance communities that gathered around Negro units, but that their contributions, their really important roles in shaping black theater manuscripts have been written out of history by the federal theater project itself. One of the big kind of aesthetic theory uh, debates in the 1930s was between realism grounded in empathy and more experimental styles of theater based in kind of alienation or more intellectual engagement with the story. How did black artists deal with that divide? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a really, it's a really interesting question. I think it's, it's one that's rooted in a sort of very white perspective, right, of what radical theatre might be, but also a very white perspective of what it is to be an audience member. So, you know, to feel alienated from the theatre might be a very, um, common experience for uh, many African-American theatre goers, and there weren't many African-American theatre goers. So one of the things that the Federal Theatre Project does, because the seats are either very uh, cheap or free, is it changes who the audience for theatre is. Um, so I think in terms of thinking about those big debates about um, realism and whether uh, realism uh, encourages this release, this catharsis, this uh, release at the end of the play, a, a release that might forestall revolutionary action on the outside, presupposes that um, the theatre is a place of escape. And for African-American audience members, for African-American actors, the theatre is never a place of escape, right? It's somewhere that you have to navigate where you're going to be allowed to sit in the audience. Uh, you'll be most often in segregated seating. Uh, if you're Rex Ingram, who becomes a famous uh, actor under the Federal Theatre Project, you are having to navigate um, wages, you're having to navigate dressing rooms, you're having to speak the words often of a white playwright who's imagining your feelings. So I think one of the things that I look at in the book is how black theatre makers, but also audiences and critics engage with this debate by questioning the idea that realism is ever an escape. And I think they also do it by writing dramas of their own, which flip between um, alienation effects that are deliberately put into the play and more realistic scenes. And one of the arguments I make in the book is that, that black realism um, plays very differently in front of mixed and integrated audiences, that it doesn't allow that kind of escapism that's so often associated with realism. Mm. Um, I'd love to ask you about comedy within the Negro units. Most of the plays we've talked about seem pretty uh, austere and, and dramatic. Maybe austere is too strong, but they certainly seem to be mostly dramas. Were there comedies staged within the Negro units and, and how did they kind of deal with that challenge? That's interesting. 
um, that you say that, because I think actually most of the plays we've, we've touched upon already were, had deeply satirical and very funny elements to them. So some of them are very moving and some of them are, you know, understood as tragedies, but they, they do have a lot of comedy in them. And I guess in particular, the black living newspapers, Liberty Deferred and Stars and Bars, they, they have many elements of comedy in them. And, and some of that comedy is sort of speaking to a broad audience and some of it's very directly addressed to um, African-American audiences. Um, I think some of the plays that are put on at the Harlem Negro Unit do absolutely uh, see themselves as, as comedies and they're designed to be sort of light relief, I guess, between the more serious dramas. But I think um, in the performance of what we're calling the serious dramas, there, there are many very, very, very funny moments. Um, and I think my own understanding of that has really been enhanced by working with theatre makers who have been attempting to stage or do readings of some of these, these plays. And I think that comedy um, is really brought out in performance in perhaps ways that you can't, can't really tell from reading a, a theatre manuscript or maybe from reading my book. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Uh, these kind of contemporary attempts to stage or at least, you know, do readings of these plays. Could you talk about your experience with those? How do contemporary theatre artists respond to this material? Yeah, so I, I did some work with the National Theatre a few years ago and we staged, um, we staged Theodore Ward's, um, or we did some readings, I should say, of Theodore Ward's Big White Fog um, and also of a Black Living newspaper. Um, and it was part of a, a two-day workshop uh, which was predominantly uh, for um, theatre makers. Um, and so the audience was mainly Black, British and African-American uh, th th theatre folk. And they were just blown away by these performances. They're blown away by how contemporary they sounded and felt. They're blown away by how so many of them focused on uh, such pressing um, social concerns today, including police violence, uh, questions of lynching, uh, voting rights, um, themes which are so, so prominent for, for, for many uh, African-Americans today. Um, and I think more, more than anything, they were blown away by how, how modern they felt, right? So the, the, the satire of the living newspaper, the sort of, the fact that they weren't all realist dramas. I think more recently, I've been really excited and interested in um, the co collaboration between Princeton uh, Theatre Programme and Classics. Um, so a few weeks ago, they uh, had an event called A Past, The Past is a Heritage. Um, and in addition to sort of a, a conversation among theatre makers and theatre scholars, they did some readings of federal theatre project plays. And I think what's really interesting about what classics are trying to do is how they're trying to reimagine what constitutes a classic play, right? Um, mm. and, and, and one of the things that really came out of those uh, readings was, was just how funny these plays were. So just to sort of refer back to your earlier question about you know, the comedy in this, I think it is, it is really easy to look at a theatre manuscript and see all of its uh, political efficacy in the dramatic speeches, right, in the monologues, in the, the difficult discussions around sexuality uh, and gender and class differences and, and the painful representations of, of colorism and intra-race racism. But of course, uh, you know, these plays are very 
are, are very well written. And I think that's one of the other things that really comes out of engaging with theatre makers is, is the quality of this work, because I think so much of the work that has been done to recover these plays has been done by you know, really brilliant theatre history scholars. But I think when um, theatre makers, contemporary theatre makers engage with these plays, you really see, see the extraordinary quality of this work. And I think that's perhaps one of the, the biggest hidden legacies of the Federal Theatre Project, right, is the sense that it was mediocre propaganda theatre, that it was all pro-New Deal, or in the eyes of the House on American Activities Committee, it was all, you know, far left communist propaganda. And propaganda is always mediocre art. And I think that vision of the Federal Theatre Project that emerges in the 1940s and 1950s is one that's still very, very dominant. You know, I've been to Federal Theatre Project conferences where theatre scholars have repeated that and said, well, you know, it's really interesting. It's an exciting moment because the, the theatre is so political and so many people are mobilised. But let's face it, most of the theatre was, was, wasn't very good. And I think actually, when you look at the, the plays that were developed by black theatre troops, in this really short period, what's really astounding to me is the, is the quality of the work. Right, it's really a shame how much the kind of racist history of what gets published and preserved has, has created the false impression that none of these plays were any good. You know, you ignore, you know, this, this huge part of the Federal Theatre Project and then you, you say, well, there was nothing worthwhile in the Federal Theatre Project. Right, right. And I think that comes out of, you know, sort of a, a broader, longer history of, of American theatre, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, and, and much European theatre too. But in terms of, you know, not having a tradition of much state subsidy of theatre and this being a very unusual experiment, you know, most Americans are surprised to learn that the federal government paid unemployed actors to not be unemployed at the height of the greatest depression in the U.S., today and I think the idea that that might also have generated really extraordinary incredible and innovative art has seemed quite challenging to many people but I wonder if the current crisis that we're going to and the response of artists and black theatre artists in particular to the Covid lockdown to the sort of decimation of you know theatre going life as we know it those creative responses I think remind us just how important artists are, just how creative they are in their responses to, you know, really serious crises. So perhaps that some of those assumptions that, oh, this is bad theatre, it was made, it was paid for by the government, these weren't proper theatre artists. I think the idea that the only good theatre is a theatre that survives in the marketplace of Broadway um, is, is, is beginning to be challenged. And I think our current crisis is doing some work to, to help challenge that. Um, I know just in my own life and in my kind of social and artistic circles, there are a lot of young theater artists who are very excited about the Federal Theater Project as some sort of a model for a, a, a theater that attempts to be more relevant to ordinary people's lives. What do you see as the legacies of the Federal Theater Project that, that theatre artists can draw from today? I think at one level it is the heritage of high quality work paid for by the government, which meant that there were different sets of pressures and sometimes those included censorship, but the pressure wasn't um, to get bums on seats, right? The pressure wasn't 
to make money. And I think that space, the space that that created, the political accountability that that required meant that different kinds of experiments could take place. So I think on the one hand, there's the work itself that gets produced as a result of that. And I think that is a really rich heritage that um, needs to be better known. And then I think on the other hand, it's a really necessary reminder that to create brilliant art, you don't, um, working in a commercial world, which has a very particular set of pressures and deadlines and financial needs, isn't necessarily the one that's most conducive to producing good art. And although lots of the brilliant theatre that's being made both here in the UK and in, in the US, you know, has long eschewed that model, I think, I think the, the ways in which, um, well, perhaps, perhaps this new administration too, is understanding the significance of government investment in the arts, in, in health and well-being, in uh, important causes like environmentalism and humanitarianism. I think there is real scope to look at the model of the 1930s and, and it's very liberal desire, right, to bring people together to put on the stage a really recent and horrifying uh, event that's taken place uh, that has shown, uh, you know, how racist America is, that, that you can put that on stage and that can be a, a, a place to bring people together rather than necessarily a place to uh, alienate particular segments of the audience. It can be something that brings people together. And thinking back to, you know, Hallie Flanagan and some of her sort of um, more hopeful uh, versions or, or narratives about the Federal Theatre Project, she, she really does understand it as something that isn't just about New York, isn't just about the East Coast, that it's not just about elites. She really does see the theatre as something that can represent the specificity, the regionality, the, the, lo the localities in which it's, it's situated. And I guess that's perhaps the other legacy of the Federal Theatre Project, right? That it produces this extraordinary interest in local stories, in folk stories, and in local theatre traditions. And I think that's something that's very hard to do through any other model. Right, and it, and it did work. I mean, it did actually get people who had never seen theater before to see really high quality new work. Right, and, 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 and also children, right? So the children's theater was uh, one of the spectacular successes of the Federal Theater Project. Um, and you know, thinking of some of the oral history interviews that were done in the 1970s by scholars at George Mason University, some of the most sort of poignant interviews are with um, those who put on children's theater and and what it meant to them to, um, particularly like the summer theatre programmes that the Federal Theatre Project sponsored really across the US, what it meant to them to see families coming along with picnics, um, you know, on a, on a hot summer's evening to, to be entertained, to learn and, and to be together. And I guess that sense of, you know, being, being together um, and learning something together and being entertained and educated together uh, is, is something that's very powerful and, uh, you know, po po policy makers would do well to think about, about how they could use that. Well, Kate Dossett, thanks so much for coming on New Books in Performing Arts to talk about your book, Radical Black Theatre and the New Deal. I really enjoyed getting to talk to you. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. <laughs>